take a deep breath. Especially with this pandemic, it's become clear to people that having a mental health challenge is not a weakness. It's not a personal failure. COVID-19 has taken a huge toll in terms of health, bereavement, employment and disruption to just about everything. And so what about mental health? In this week's Radio Davos, we look at what can be done in the workplace. Those in the business community are inundated with glossy brochures telling them that this or that will work for their workplace and will support mental health. And we really wanted to put the science into this area by trying to really understand well, what does really help. Mindfulness apps, flexible working, yoga classes, or maybe just getting up from your desk every now and then. These might reduce depressive symptoms by around 10% and anxiety by around 15%. We hear from the Wellcome Trust on its quest to understand what can really save people's mental health. And we also hear from this woman, whose experience as a child refugee from the Rwandan genocide inspired her to speak out for mental health for all. There shouldn't be other young people like me growing up in confusion, growing up in pain, not knowing how to care for themselves. On Radio Davos, we look at the world's biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, and with a look at what we can do in the workplace to tackle mental health. Because sometimes even just talking about sharing, opening up and sharing what happened to you can, yeah, it can definitely help you. This is Radio Davos. Even before the pandemic, anxiety and depression were estimated to cost the global economy over $1 trillion every year in lost productivity. So perhaps it should not surprise us then to learn that corporate wellness is a booming sector. Companies are lining up to offer employers silver bullets to deal with mental health, and the industry is forecast to be worth $66 billion by 2022. With that kind of money being spent, you might assume that those spending it know what they're buying is effective. But the truth is, no one really knows. This week, the Wellcome Trust, a philanthropic funder of science, issued a call to companies to join them in analysing the effectiveness of workplace mental health initiatives. You can read all about it in a report issued with the World Economic Forum called Putting Science to Work, Understanding What Works for Workplace Mental Health. And I caught up with the head of mental health at the Wellcome Trust, Professor Miranda Wolpert, and started by asking her what the report is about. So we're very aware that uh, those in the business community are inundated with glossy brochures Uh, telling them that this or that will work for their workplace and their workforce and will support mental health. And we really wanted to put the science uh, into this area by trying to really understand, well, what does really help, for whom, in what context, to try and support businesses to uh, inform their mental health strategies. So we put out a call um, globally for researchers to put in their best bets for what they thought might help to review the existing literature. And we ended up funding 10 research teams to review evidence behind promising approaches for addressing anxiety and depression, particularly focusing on younger workers. Yeah, and the report mentions, and I quote, eye-catching mental health initiatives from mindfulness apps to puppies in the office to banning out-of-hours emails. I mean, are you able to say after doing this report which of these work and which of them... So we, I mean, I'm fascinated to know if the puppies work. So we didn't do a direct head-to-head comparison of those in particular. And indeed, we didn't do a direct head-to-head comparison of any interventions. But we did look at a range of interventions. So to give you some highlights from the report, 
we've uh, one team looked at flexible working and the benefits of flexible working and they felt found that actually uh, allowing flexible working really reduced the conflict between work and home uh, but the uptake really depended on the support from supervisors and managers so a lot was context dependent to take the other end of uh, uh, interventions that might be possible, another team looked at uh, breaking up excessive sitting with light activities such as sit and stand desks or movement breaks. And they found that these might reduce the depressive symptoms by around 10% and anxiety by around 15% just by introducing these movement breaks into the daily activity of people working within the organisation. Those used to be cigarette breaks, didn't they? And then I think you raise an interesting question of why does this help? Is this to do with the physical activity or is it to do with the sort of break in routine in some way? And I think that's part of our agenda to try and understand the science of what really makes the difference. And so similarly, increasing employee autonomy seems to also have a positive impact on mental health, but be particularly relevant for older workers. Interesting that um, flexibility, flexible working has come up now because because of COVID. Obviously, a lot of concerns about mental health but also a lot of people are, if not exactly flexible working, but they're working very differently from how they were working pre-pandemic. Is there a lot more of awareness from COVID, do you think, about mental health at work? I certainly think it's raised mental health massively up the agenda for a range of reasons. And I think workplaces have become more open to talking about this issue. And that it, it, I think us all seeing each other in our in our homes has also made us perhaps more um, accessible to talk about these issues as well. So I think there are a number of reasons why it has uh, risen on the agenda, and I think that's to be welcomed. I think that has to be accompanied, though, with a sort of relevant humility about how little we know about what are the really effective ways of helping people, and trying to to really test out rigorously what will help in different workplace environments. And just going back to your puppies example, there, 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 are, there is some research of using, for example, puppies in universities, for example, where students are feeling stressed or, or, or pets as a form of therapy. So there is some evidence of that. But we didn't look at it in this particular report, but it may be something if someone wants to put in a proposal for a future report that we would be interested in looking at. So we're not trying to laugh at these different ideas we're really saying we need to bring science to these different ideas rather than advocacy right i mean one of the main conclusions of the report seems to be that there's a massive lack of evidence a lack of research and and one of the things this report is doing is calling on businesses to take part in research into the efficacy of this kind of thing and what, what do you hope businesses might do that's exactly right we really want to take uh, the fear of science out of businesses. We want to feel businesses to feel that they can partake in science in terms of both having a really thoughtful ways of measuring mental health of their employees. And we know that's complicated and there are all sorts of privacy uh, balancing issues that would need to be brought into effect. But creating a sort of data infrastructure that will allow them to uh, review and act upon the mental health and well-being of those they employ and then to try and think about both what the evidence currently says but also try and help form a new evidence base by trialling different things in rigorous ways and testing them out as they would with other business initiatives. So in terms of awareness a very interesting fact you point out in the report is that 
half of millennials and Generation Z. So what age are we talking up to now? That's kind of up to 30-year-olds, I suppose, is it? Well, we did a little bit of uh, research ourselves to try and work out the what these different terms mean, and they, they are used rather differently in different contexts. But Generation Z currently are, are between 6 and 24 year, years old, and millennials are currently between 25 and 40 years old. 40? Already? Well, we're all getting older. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, um, so I'll complete that sentence. So anyone up to 40, uh, a recent survey found that uh, mental health was in the top two of their biggest concerns. We don't have a comparative figure for older people, but assuming younger people are more concerned than older people, do we know why? It's a really interesting phenomenon um, and this was true uh, prior to the pandemic, so it isn't an effect of the pandemic. We think it's a mixture of things. Um, I think it's partly there's an increasing awareness of mental health that's grown up with this generation, and the, the, the sort of stigma around it, particularly uh, for some groups, has really reduced. There may also be a fact that for uh, some of these groups that life is very stressful in new ways, both in terms of climate crisis, job insecurity, issues around um, greater awareness of sort of of racial and other systemic injustices that may make uh, maybe more salient and maybe more aware of these groups. Um, And I guess also that there is a, a generational attitude to the importance of having a fulfilled life and work being part of that. Um, Mm. So a sort of different uh, sense of what people want and are looking for from their workplace. Things like FOMO, these expressions that didn't exist before, maybe social media, fear of missing out or viewing perfection all the time on the internet. I suppose from a young person's point of view, this constant desire to attain the perfection they're seeing all about them, even more so than previous generations, perhaps. Um, That is certainly a hypothesis. I think, again, consistent with our approach on science, I think we don't know is the honest truth. And and there are many researchers looking at this area, so it will emerge over time exactly what the differences are between one generation and another. I think we have to be careful about um, attributing cause to any one uh, event because there'll be a range of different things. And and certainly, as a mental health expert, I've become... Uh, very used to talking to different groups and if I'm talking to teachers they say well isn't it terrible how the education system has developed and that's why people are feeling so stressed and if I'm talking to others who are campaigning about social media they might say well social media is terrible and other people might say well it's job insecurity that's so terrible so they're they're, um, I think it's highly unlikely there's one thing we can point to and say this is what it makes the key thing of a generational difference but certainly there is evidence, particularly amongst young women, of rising rates of anxiety and depression. Um, and there's also evidence for this generation of being more interested in uh, mental health generally. I think we also need to put that in the context of for this generation, there is less drug taking, less risky behaviour, less aggression, less violence than other generations. So this is also a generation that's different in terms of peacefulness and sort of community mindedness in a way that other generations weren't. So let's have a look at the market. It's kind of big business, isn't it, as well as therapy. It says here that the corporate wellness market was forecast to reach $66 billion by 2022. So there's money to be made there. Are some of these therapies, some of these tools that are available in the workplace for employers to provide for their employees, do you get the feeling that there's a lot of really good things happening there or that there's a lot of charlatanism or is there a mixture of both? I mean... Should we be happy that people are spending 
a lot of money on these things? That's a great question. And my answer is, as you would predict, we simply don't know. And that's part of the challenge. I mean, if I had to hypothesize, I would say it's your third option. It's a mix. Uh, But it's hard to tell um, where that mix lies. So again, you know, I think it's easy to mock some of the interventions, but actually they may be really helpful in a given context and other things that on the face of them they seem very sensible may be unhelpful and I guess that's what we're trying to say to businesses you have the power to test out what works within your context use that power work with us and others to research what works for you in your context and for the people that you're employing. Let's look at this on on a global level here do you think this is something that all countries should be considering or is this a luxury of kind of the richer developed world? So I think it's really important to be completely clear this is a fundamental human right and and an issue globally but of course what may work in one context and may be salient in one context may be different. One of the reports was done by researchers looking at hospitality workers in Jamaica And one of their areas of interest was mindfulness training and relaxation and thinking about how that worked for that community and the lack of research in that context as opposed to in uh, high income uh, country contexts. So there's some really interesting research to be done, but I think it's really important to remember that uh, mental health issues are at every bit as, as relevant in low middle low middle uh, income countries or indeed in low resource settings as they are in high resource settings. And do you think that's widely recognised? I think it's starting to be. There's always a bit of a danger when one's in the mental health world that you're in your mental health bubble. So everyone within the mental health bubble recognise it. So therefore everyone must recognise it. So I think it's something that I hope will get more recognised over time. But certainly amongst mental health professionals that would be recognised, yes. What tangible changes do you think we're likely to see in the coming years? What what will become normal and what will we, will we expect to see in our workplace related to mental health? So one of the things I've been very much noticing is the rise of job roles within organisations whose specific responsibility encompasses mental health and well-being. And I would expect that trend to continue. I would expect that to become increasingly professionalised and integrated and that those roles will require more sense of reviewing the evidence and also reviewing the impacts of interventions. So I would expect these things to become more integrated as part of the strategy of the organisation that looks at uh, hard data in terms of what the impact of different interventions might be in terms of wellness or mental health. What would you recommend for, if there's such a thing as an average person, are there things we should be doing during our working day or before or after it? that would improve our mental health potentially. So this is an issue we're looking at as part of our wider research agenda beyond this report, research into what we call the active ingredients of what helps people. There again, we've reviewed the literature, we've commissioned people to review the literature to look at a range of things. What we found there is that that the things that might help people range from walks in nature, taking medication, seeing a professional, changing the way you think about things, right through to different ways of interacting with people. I think from the point of view of the organisation, probably the most key person in the organisation is the line manager or supervisor. And having line managers and supervisors who 
understand not that they become therapists or mini psychologists or psychiatrists but they understand mental health needs and how to support people and how to signpost people i think that is crucial um, and i think in terms of what the individual can do what our research generally is showing is that it may be very personal what works for one people person may not work for another so what i would say to someone who is struggling is find people that you trust that you can talk to about that and try and find what works for you, which may range from seeing a professional, taking medication, getting more exercise, regularizing sleep, changing a relationship, thinking about your diet. There may be a range of different things that you can try, and it may be that you need to try more than one of those things until you find what works for you. But having trusted people that you feel can support you on that journey is probably the first step. Someone's got to pay for all of this, though. If workplaces are providing mental health support, can they afford to do it? Well, one of the interesting things from the research that we've commissioned so far is that some of these initiatives don't necessarily cost much and may not cost anything at all. So, for example, asking people to stand up or move around during the day may be cost neutral, depending on how much you want to invest in expensive sit-stand desks. Um, uh, similarly, uh, encouraging employee autonomy or, or in, uh, in involving employees in designing their jobs or designing particular roles or encouraging flexibility may be cost neutral. They may, may not, but it would be up to the business to decide. So I think there are many things that can be done that aren't actually a financial burden. And of course, you mentioned the report that the cost to the global economy from anxiety and depression is more than $1 trillion every year in lost productivity. Absolutely. Um, and even, uh, you know, if people are present but struggling, that will really be having impacts on their ability to, to work. So there are savings to be made, even if it does cost uh, money to invest in this area. But there are also things you can do that are cost neutral. Professor Miranda Wolpert, Director of Mental Health at the Wellcome Trust. The report released this week is called Putting Science to Work, Understanding What Works for Workplace Mental Health. There's a link to it on the article that accompanies this episode. Find that at wef.ch podcasts. To understand a little more about mental health, I spoke to someone whose own struggles led her to become a global advocate for mental health services. As a baby in Rwanda at the time of the genocide, Grace Katera was, I suppose, spared some of the worst of the horrors in which 800,000 people were killed. Her parents fled with her to Uganda to escape the violence and she grew up as a refugee. Speaking from Kigali, she told me some of her story. My parents and I survived the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi with my family. And of course, that comes with a lot of uh, concoction or like a, a bouquet of mental health challenges. Um, my family and I suffer from post-traumatic distress disorder, um, depression, and I personally had ex- have experience with panic disorder because of uh, the experience that I went through. And so growing up in a, in a foreign country, because we were refugees, you tend to want to seek care. Um, but that care is not accessible for people like me who are, you know, who are at the bottom rung, who had no money or any way to care for themselves. So you grow up like that. I grew up like that. My family grew up like that. And as you grow up, these issues compound and added to the trauma of living as a refugee without a home, feeling groundless, feeling unrooted. Um, that definitely does a number on you. So when I got the chance to come back to my country uh, four years ago, 
I decided to seek medical care and it made a difference. And since then, I, I decided that, you know, there shouldn't be other young people like me growing up in confusion, growing up in pain, not knowing how to care for themselves. And that's when I decided to become an advocate. So let's go back to the beginning. You were a very small baby when your parents fled with you across the border. They obviously witnessed as, as adults horrific scenes. You as a, a baby of one year old, I believe, wouldn't mm-hmm. have, have witnessed that in the same way they did. What you did have then as a very young child was this uprooting with a traumatised family living in a different country. What's it like for a, you know, a, a small child four years old with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? I mean, what, what are the symptoms of that for a child of that age? That's, that's a good question. And yeah, it, it took a while for us to realise that, for my parents basically, to realise that I had PTSD because, of course, I hadn't witnessed. I was just a year and a half when we fled. How it presented in me was that I was very, very anxious. I remember my mom tells me now, she keeps making fun of me, that every time I'd hear like a wood cutter or like a lawnmower, I'd run to my parents shivering. I'm like, they're coming. I don't know who it is who's coming, but I always felt like whoever said a lawnmower, whoever was cutting down a tree, any big sounds were, you know, people coming to harm me. I did not relate with people. I had severe social anxiety. I can't remember all the different ways, but those are some of the big ones. Um, And so my mom, mustered up courage to go to so we were staying within a, a, a space that was reserved for refugees and she mustered up courage to go to you know the camp counselor and then the counselor said she may be presenting with signs of PTSD but my mom was unable to follow up because we had no money for actual medical care. So what medical care did you get when you returned to Rwanda then many years later that you said worked so well for you? The first thing I did when I get got here was uh, get uh, a formal diagnosis. Then, because of the universal healthcare system that we have here, I was able to receive medication for depression. What is it called? Prozac? Yeah, it's called Prozac. And then I was also able to see a therapist at on a reduced rate because of insurance. And that made a world of a difference because sometimes even just talking about sharing, opening up and sharing what happened to you can, yeah, it can definitely help you. Your situation, the Rwandan genocide, is just a, one of the worst things to happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. A lot of people haven't gone through anything remotely like that, but still suffer from mental health problems. Is it possible to compare someone suffering from anxiety or depression in a developed country who's not been through, you know, having to flee their country, flee violence, to, to what you went through? Are the symptoms similar or are they very, very different things? Okay, that's a brilliant question. Thank you. Um, I, I think that while the situations vary wildly, I would say that, you know, mental health issues are caused by a myriad of things happening. So someone in the Western, in, you know, in a Western country might not necessarily go through the same thing that I went through, but they might be suffering from an abusive, you know, household. They might experience an accident. Um, They might experience, you know, something traumatic in their life, loss of a loved one, and they would get... PTSD, the thing about mental health is it doesn't care who you are. You could be, you know, the richest person on earth and you would still get uh, 
issues, you know, with your mental health. The one thing that brings us together is that the universality of suffering. Let's talk a bit about social attitudes. I read somewhere that when you were a girl in Uganda, no one was really taking it that seriously, the issue of mental health. And it wasn't until you got back to Rwanda many years later that it was taken seriously. In different parts of the world, it will be different. But I would see in Europe, for example, mental health was not a particularly high-profile issue maybe 20 years ago, and it's really becoming so now. In the work that you do as an advocate for mental health, have you noticing changes in attitudes around the world? Yes. And this has come from the work of people with lived experience, being brave and open. And I'm not even talking about myself. There's been a big effort by people across the world living with mental health challenges to come out and speak proudly about themselves and share their experiences. And this has led to opening up. But the other reason why the attitudes have changed is because of, again, the universality of suffering, especially with this pandemic. It's become clearer to people that having a mental health challenge is not a weakness. It's not a personal failure. It's just something that happens due to something or something that just happens. Growing up in Uganda, the biggest challenge that I had was the stigma. And the stigma was from also the wayward teachings of the church. Demon possession, that's something they said I had <laughs> as I was growing up. Is that attitude changing though within within the church or, or have they got a way to go still? They, they do have a way to go. Church and institutions so like the Anglican church or like the Catholic church, I can see a difference there. But uh, evangelical offshoots definitely still misleading people. The report that we're looking at in, in this episode is looking at what employers should provide in terms of mental health support. Do you have any views on that? What in the workplace should be provided? There definitely has to be more support than is available. I will say that for a lot of the places that I've spoken to about their mental health, there has been, you know, wellness camps, wellness retreats, you know, mindfulness apps, uh, access and things like that. And those are great things. But I think that more support in terms of adding, you know, uh, mental health care to insurance, the insurance benefits, more leeway to have time out of office, more specialized care, things like that can do a world of a difference. It's the responsibility of an employer to have the best employees possible. If someone's listening to this and they're suffering from mental health problems, What would be your advice to them? My message would not be to the person, it would be to the people around that person. Listen to them, believe them, and find a way for them to get care. Grace Gatera speaking to Radio Davos from Kigali. For more podcasts, please visit wef.ch slash podcasts or find us wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. My thanks to my guests this week, Miranda Wolpert of the Wellcome Trust and mental health advocate Grace Gutera. We'll be back next week with a look at the threat of cyber attacks, particularly ransomware. Subscribe to Radio Davos to get that when it lands. Meanwhile, from me, Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.